Hi, this is Drew Miller and Stacy Berliner from uh, the law firm of Bross McDowell. Thank you for joining us today. This is going to be the first in what will be a series of podcasts about the uh, COVID-19 outbreak and potential insurance coverage issues related to that. So uh, we're going to walk you through today some of the bigger issues uh, that we've seen on the business interruption front in particular that seems to be leading the way right now in questions that uh, policyholders and our clients are having. And then we'll talk about some uh, other potential coverages that are available um, and some specialized policies. So thanks again for joining us and uh, we'll get going here. So the first topic is business interruption. And generally you're going to find a business interruption and extra expense coverage typically called the time element coverages under a policy, and those are on your commercial property policy. It's usually a coverage that uh, a business will pay extra for and have a specific premium, or it can also be built in as part of the package. Because it's a property coverage, the policy is generally gonna require an order for recovery that there be direct physical loss or damage to property owned, leased, or rented by the insured. And that's gonna be the trigger for business interruption coverage, is did the business sustain a direct physical loss or damage? So as we're looking at that, we're thinking through, does a pandemic of this nature that has contaminated nearly every state and has caused a sweeping set of stay-at-home orders, do those orders and the contamination of the property uh, constitute direct physical loss. And that is really the most determinative question. It's probably a question that's gonna be litigated going forward. As we've uh, blogged about recently, we've already seen cases that have been filed where a property insurance policyholder has been denied coverage under this for a COVID-related loss and has and filed suit. And one of the questions in that suit is, does the COVID outbreak or does a stay-at-home order trigger the coverage? Is that direct physical loss or damage? And as far as that question goes, this COVID outbreak is unique, but we can look at some policy decisions that are from other contexts to kind of try to discern where courts go on this. And there are really cases supporting uh, both positions. So the policyholder obviously is gonna say, yeah, this is physical, uh, direct physical loss or damage. My business has been shuttered because of it. That's a trigger for the business interruption policy. I should get business interruption coverage. Some courts have found that older, odor and mold spores are intangible harms that do not alter the structural integrity of a building and cannot be a direct physical loss. So again, that's a little bit different of a context, but some analogies can be drawn between odor and mold spores and COVID-19, because one of the positions that we're going to be taking is that services have been contaminated with the COVID-19. That requires cleanup and that's physical loss or damage under the policy. So there are some cases finding that mold spores and odor also extending to bacterial contamination and water damage do not 
constitute a direct physical loss. And as far as the water damage goes, you're really talking about the odor from the water damage. So, you know, as you have water infiltrating, there's mold that causes an odor, that type of thing. On the other side, for policyholders, there are cases that do stand for the proposition that an insured may suffer physical loss from contamination for something like COVID-19, because that causes changes to the property that can't be seen or touched. So even though you can't see it, you can't touch it, with COVID-19, you can't even smell it, that still has, by some courts, in similar instances, been seen as enough to constitute direct physical loss or damage. And again, that's key because that triggers your business interruption coverage. That's right, Drew. I think the question is not a simple answer as to whether it's going to constitute direct physical loss or damage in the court's eyes. I think what Drew outlined very well here is that it's very jurisdiction dependent. Are you in a jurisdiction that requires structural alteration or actual structural integrity of a building being damaged? Or are you in a state that interprets, or a jurisdiction rather, that interprets direct physical loss more broadly in accordance with its own terms? For example, there are several courts out there that find that the presence of just harmful substances in the air, such as odor, toxic gas, fumes, smoke, asbestos, and even ammonia, may render the property uninhabitable or unusable, and therefore that is sufficient to constitute direct physical loss. In many of these jurisdictions, you find that they state that the contaminants within the air physically alters or transforms the air and makes it unfit for occupancy. One of my favorite cases of this is the fact that cat urine smell constituted direct physical loss, stating that it would constitute direct physical loss even when the absence of structural damage. We've seen this case cited numerous times. It's the Gregory packaging case, which decided that Ammonia, which had spilled and dissipated what was present in the air of a facility, constituted direct physical loss until it dissipated under both New Jersey and Georgia law. We're finding more of these cases, and because we're finding that the COVID virus may be transferred through aerosol, these cases may be more and more important to our understanding to coverage. We will also, in other podcasts, discuss the respiratory droplets that drop to the surfaces and make those surfaces uninhabitable and unusable and direct physical loss. So please look forward to those podcasts going forward. All right. Thanks, Stacy. The next thing that we're going to talk about and what's going to be important with a uh, business interruption claim so that so let's take a step back first and talk about what business interruption coverage is. Business interruption coverage will provide base essentially for your a business's ongoing uh, expenses of operation when it can't access its property because of a covered loss. So what we've been talking about first was, is there a covered loss? Has there been, again, direct physical loss or damage to property owned, uh, rented, used by the insured. The next question 
after you've established that is then what is the period in which you are permitted to receive or will receive payments from the insurance carrier to cover your loss of business income. So the, the business interruption payment. And that is what we refer to shorthand as the period of indemnity. So during what period will the insurance company provide indemnity for you for, for your loss? And generally that is the period that applies is from the time of the loss. So the time of the contamination, you may take the position that it's the time that the government issued an order uh, shutting businesses down, the stay-at-home orders, that type of thing. That would be the triggering event. So that starts the clock. Well, when does the clock end? Under most policy forms, the clock is going to end when the physical loss or damage to property has been addressed and remediated. The typical example would be a fire. So a fire strikes a business, you're going to have the period of indemnity, the period in which you're going to get your reimbursement, will start at the date of the fire and will end at the date that your business is uh, reconstructed and, and you open your door. So whatever in that time is the period of indemnity. There will be arguments about that issue with the COVID-19 outbreak because the end date isn't as clear as it would normally be in the typical fire example, as I just said, because it's really not clear at this point exactly what steps are needed to remediate the property, the damage or loss to property that's caused this, that's causing the loss. So insurers will probably take the position, well, it's a very short period of indemnity because you can just go in, clean your property, disinfect it, have maybe even have an outside contractor come in and, and do it, and then your property's clean. So at that point in time, the contamination is over, the property damage has ended, it's been remediated, we're going to cut it off. And that kind of thing could probably do be done in short order, two or three days. But that's not really addressing the issue from the policyholder side, because I can clean up the property, but because of the nature of COVID-19, if I have one person walk in who is positive, or I have one person come in who has been exposed even, then the property again has been damaged, I think is, is the best way to look at this. So there's this continuing nature of the loss, and that's going to be the insurer's, the policyholder side argument, is that this isn't just something that could be cleaned up in a couple of days and we'd be back to business because that's not the nature of this. And that's really, I think, what the argument is going to be, is that this is a long-term um, problem. It's going to keep being recontaminated. So from the policyholder side, you're going to have a longer period of indemnity. Right. And we're already starting to see policyholders make those arguments in the cases. As you're probably well aware, there are cases being filed almost on a daily basis by policyholders against their insurers for wrongfully denying these COVID business interruption claims. We see it in the Ocean Grill case where the insured is arguing about the recontamination of their restaurant and also citing both health officials and government officials' statements about how long the virus stays on the premises and the recontamination of those premises uh, in the situations described by Drew. 
The next thing you may wanna look for in your property policy is an exclusion. And we're just gonna talk about, um, I'm gonna talk generally about a virus exclusion. You may see other exclusions such as bacteria and mold, but unless they expressly state virus, we would argue as policyholders that they do not apply. But there is an ISO form exclusion, it's ISO 147.6, that refers to virus specifically. And it states that it will not apply to loss or damage caused by or resulting from any virus that induces or is capable of inducing physical distress, illness, or disease. This particular exclusion is going to be tested in the court as to whether it applies. And the truth is that may be very fact specific upon your circumstance. For example, there is another exclusion which insurers are arguing applies to this. It's entitled mortality and death and stating that mortality and death will be excluded if it's caused by natural causes, disease, sickness, any condition of health, bacteria, or virus. Now, any grammarian will tell you that that's really a mortality or death exclusion and not necessarily a virus exclusion. It doesn't say that it's going to exclude business interruption caused by a virus. So I think a policyholder will be on excellent ground in stating that that particular exclusion doesn't apply. And we'll look forward to many courts deciding whether the virus exclusion in the ISO forum will apply to the specific circumstances raised by the policyholder. And on the virus and bacteria exclusion, I also like it in cases where policies don't have it, that other policies do, because I think that that opens up an argument for those policies that don't have a specific virus exclusion. So I've seen several that have bacterial exclusions or fungus exclusions, but there'll be bacteria, fungus, mold, that type of exclusion, and not actually state virus. And I like the fact that there's an ISO form and that there are insurance carriers out there who have added a specific reference to viruses, because that would tell me that they don't think that their form as written is all that clear. So they're concerned about ambiguity. Ambiguity in the insurance coverage context is resolved in favor of coverage. So I, I think that that presence of that virus exclusion floating out there may be helpful to some of the policyholders going forward who don't have that specific exclusion because we can use it to argue that the insurance carriers knew how to and the industry knew how to exclude for viruses. They just chose not to do it. The next exclusion that is probably going to come up that is the pollution exclusion. And the pollution exclusions vary uh, widely depending on policy. They all say they're all in the same ballpark, but the specific language will vary from carrier to carrier. Uh, the typical form says that a pollutant, which would be excluded from the policy, uh, can typically mean any solid, liquid, gaseous, or thermal irritant contaminant, including smoke, vapor, soot, fumes, acids, alkalis, chemicals, and waste. The big question, obviously, reading that is, is that definition of pollutant broad enough to include a virus? Obviously, policyholders, we're all going to argue no, it's not. The point of the exclusion is to bar coverage for general environmental degradation, not a virus. 
So really what, what they're looking for is trying to exclude damage from what we consider traditional pollutants in the traditional manner. So you have some type of leak of toxic material on a property. That leak has leached into the surrounding ground area, maybe to a, to a neighbor's property and looking for coverage for that. That's what this exclusion is intended to cover. It's not intended to cover, at least from the policyholder standpoint, this sudden viral infection. And again, if they wanted to, if the insurance industry wanted to, they certainly know how to define a virus and to add that virus, and they didn't in the form. Drew, do you think the point that you raised earlier about the fact that after Legionella or after some other mold, for example, issues came up and courts were finding that those did not constitute pollutants. And then we started to see those express exclusions in the policies. Do you think that helps the policyholders argument that that COVID-19 does not qualify as a pollutant? Yes, I do. And for the same reason, and it goes right along with the fact that an industry knows how to exclude a virus and they could have done it. I think it's even stronger when you start to look at the fact that there are specific Legionella exclusions. There are specific mold exclusions. And those have all been introduced in response to court decisions that have said exactly what we don't want to argue here. Hey, insurance industry, you have the resources. You're drafting the policies. You can figure this stuff out. And it's on you to figure out what you need to exclude and how to write the contract. Because you, you didn't in Legionella and mold coverage was found and all the way back to the asbestos case there is asbestos coverage under some under early policy forms because again there wasn't an exclusion for that the industry will develop an exclusion for this i have no doubt and we'll start to see those in the next year come rolling out on policies however it's too late for some of these and i think it again it's just making the argument stronger for our side when you start rolling out these these exclusions Drew, on that point, I have not seen a policy that includes virus in the definition of pollutant. Have you? No, I have not. I have seen virus coupled in the bacterial and mold exclusion and titled slightly differently. So it it essentially picks up like that type of contamination. So virus, so they group virus, bacteria, and mold, but I've yet to see virus in the definition of a pollutant. And this all goes back to one of the mantras that Stacy and I and the other coverage attorneys at Browse will, will say is that there is a lot of specific language. There are a lot of considerations that you have to think through when you're looking at these policies. And there's a range of judicial guidance on the scope of this exclusion and the scope of the other exclusions. So it's something that you're going to want to analyze carefully. It's not enough just to read the policy. You've also got to look at what the applicable law will be and the facts and circumstances surrounding each law. So to to do your careful evaluation of that. So we've talked about so far what will trigger the policy, which is direct physical loss or damage, the period of indemnity that would possibly apply. So when does the law start? When does the law end? some exclusions that some of the insurers might uh, attempt to assert to avoid coverage. So assuming that you get past the the first issue of is this a covered loss and then you arrive at a a logical 
way to figure out the period of indemnity, then the insurers are going to start uh, picking exclusions that they think might knock you out of coverage. Then the next issue is, all right, if we set the, the business interruption and extra expense coverage aside, what other potential coverages are there uh, under a typical commercial property policy for this kind of damage? One of the first that jumps to mind would be those policies that contain an endorsement providing what's called communicable disease coverage. And those provisions generally cover loss relating from what would be a CDE, so communicable disease event, or an event in which a public health authority has ordered the location to be evacuated, decontaminated, and disinfected due to an outbreak of disease, virus transmitted directly or indirectly from human to human. So again, that, that's really talking about exactly what we're having. We're having a governmental agency coming in and saying, you have to evacuate, you have to stay at home, we're going to have to decontaminate, which not all of the orders are, are saying that decontamination is necessary. However, I think it's implied in all of the orders that once we get back to where the stay-at-home orders are going to be lifted, all these public spaces are going to be de- need to be decontaminated. With these uh, communicable disease coverage endorsements, sometimes it will still require loss of physical damage or damage to the property caused by the CDE. So cost covered would include tear out and replacement of insured property, repair and build of property insured, and then costs needed to mitigate, clean, detoxify, and remove for task to monitor the effects of the communicable disease. So again, this is going to possibly get you some of the coverage for some of the things that you're going to have to do on the other side as a business owner of this outbreak, particularly for those of you who have public spaces, be it a restaurant or a store where you're going to have access to the public to all of these spaces. You're going to have to do something to address the fact that it was probably contaminated at the time of shutdown. And then there's also the provision will normally pay for bodily injury and extra expense Again, those time element coverages, the, the coverages that we're really looking for here to pay, to pay for this lost income during the period of restoration, but only if the suspension is due to physical loss or damage at a location resulting from a communicable disease. So you're back to this concept of the physical loss or damage. So again, those same arguments that we talked about at the very beginning of the podcast, these are potentially going to come back. Generally, there are limits of what this coverage will cover. A lot of times they will not pay for testing and monitoring after a specific time after restoration. So they're not going to continue to pay you to have the air quality monitored for a year after the original incident and after the remediation has taken place. This isn't a continuing obligation of the insurance carrier to continue to monitor the air and that type of thing. So there'll typically be some kind of time uh, limit there. And then there are also some time limits for claims that are reported late. So this is, a, this is something where you want to think now, if you potentially have this coverage, have someone take a look at it, research it, and figure out if you want to make this claim because there is a time bar on it. So usually it's 30 days after the public health order the location be evacuated. So most of us are already on the clock on this particular coverage. And the last thing uh, to think about with this coverage is there's usually a smaller sublimit for this. 
So th that applies to all of the coverages, including the business income that are related to the specific endorsement. So it will usually pay for less than your typical broader business interruption and extra expense coverage. Yeah, and I think we can see policyholders make the argument that if communicable disease coverage is in the policy, then isn't the insurer already admitting that the communicable disease, in this case, the virus, the COVID virus, causes direct physical loss to the property? I think that that's sort of an, an interesting dynamic, and I, I think we're going to see some arguments made with regard to that. I also like this coverage because it does include business income and extra expense, but we're going to see those arguments that, that Drew pointed out earlier about the, the period of indemnity. We'll see the insurer argue that that's just a quick cleanup time period matter of hours or days, and the insured is going to argue that it is much longer. The limits that I, sublimits that I've seen for these policies is only about two hundred dollars to $500,000. Perhaps for, for larger entities with more facilities, they're higher, but they're considerably less than the general business income and extra expense limits. So policyholders may be more interested in the uh, general business income and extra expense due to the availability of more funds. Another coverage that we have seen mostly by endorsement to property policies is a crisis management response. There may be coverage here for the COVID virus. Generally, what this provides is two things. One is crisis management communication. And this means that if your organization has been suspended and most of the time the crisis management response does not require physical loss or damage but if your facility has received negative press both either regional or national due to uh, a, what they'll refer to as a crisis management event which in a lot of policies does include uh, an outbreak or an issue regarding a communicable disease. In that case, I have seen that they will pay, again, there is a sublimit for the crisis communication response. So if you are a grocery store and it's found that you have a COVID-related incident in your facility and you have to shut down and the press is covering it, you know, this policy provision could be triggered to provide coverage. In addition, there is a section in some of these crisis management coverages, which allows for business income and extra expense during this time. Again, like the communicable disease coverage, you're gonna to have to provide prompt notice of the crisis that led to the suspension of your business. One thing that is important with regard to all of the coverages under the property policy, the same important provisions apply. We're talking about notice and cooperation with the insured. Specifically, pay close attention to your notice requirements. As Drew stated, the communicable disease coverage usually has a very short limit, and it's somewhere between 15, 30, 45 days of when the public authority issued an order. So you don't want to run the risk of missing that notice requirement. Same with the crisis management. I've seen that is very short between 24, 48 hours from the event that suspended the facility. 
Other than that, your business income and extra expense generally is going to require prompt notice, which means that you have to provide notice within a reasonable time based upon the particular facts and circumstances of the case. Now, I think that given the circumstances that we're in, the ever-changing environment, that that is going to be heavily litigated, but I do think that you have to pay close attention to the particular loss and circumstances of the policyholder. If you are a essential business, for example, or if you are a restaurant that had to close down, you know, the particular facts of that circumstance may lead to business income and extra expense more rapidly than, than like I said, a grocery store. It is extremely important if you do decide to file a claim that you keep records of your expenses or extra expenses that you're taking to mitigate the circumstances of your loss and also the business income. If you are losing profit, make sure that that is documented and you have the backup data to substantiate it. Remember that there are policy limitations, especially for these extended coverages um, like the civil authority, communicable disease and crisis management that you might not be aware of. Remember that they may have different deductibles. For example, the crisis management response, just the communication, does not require a deductible. However, the business income and extra expense under that coverage provision will have a deductible and subject also to the sublimit. One other thing that we should point out is that there is another coverage available. If you are entitled to business income and extra expense, your policy may also have extended business income and extra expense, which means that it could provide additional funds, again, subject to a sublimit, even after the period of restoration or the period of indemnity in order to get you back to the point you were before the COVID virus affected your business and started your losses. We want to thank you guys for uh, attending this podcast. I think that as you will see from this podcast and others in the series, that coverage is going to highly depend upon the specific policy terms that your policy has. In addition, it's going to rely on the facts present to that specific policyholder and the facts that are ever changing today. The different orders, the different statements by the Department of Health authorities, and also scientists who are discussing the particulate way that the virus is transmitted, how long it stays on surfaces, um, and how it can recontaminate a facility very quickly and for a lengthy time. And finally, if you haven't figured out from this podcast, much of this will depend upon the jurisdiction that you're in and the way the court interprets the policy provisions that you have. So while everybody is looking for a simple answer, the short answer is it could depend upon many factors. Thank you for joining us with this podcast. We hope that it has provided you with information and helped identify things to think about. Drew Miller and I are always available to talk to you about these issues. You can find Drew and I at www.browse, spelled B-R-O-U-S-E dot com. Or feel free to email us. Drew is at A-M-I-L-L-E-R at browse dot com. And I am at S-V-E-R-L-I-N-E-R dot com. Thank you.